I'm William Thomas, a producer at Empathetic Machines. In this series of podcasts, we explore the concept of mission. More specifically, we explore why people get committed to a mission-driven business. Figuring out how to deliver profits to shareholders and owners is hard enough. Why would people get involved in a business that has goals extending beyond this? What is it about these people that develop the focus on a societal or some other sort of benefit? We produce these podcasts with a company called Andourage, a distinctively mission-driven company. The Andourage website states that the company is all about reinventing wellness. The company develops CBD-rich, full cannabis flower extracts. So that's the mission, reinventing wellness. Each podcast will show how one individual came to this mission. Now, these individuals are influenced by big events like the Civil Rights Movement, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, 9-11. Big events, however, only provide a backdrop. What's interesting here is how life events accumulate over time to form this mission commitment. I think you really enjoyed the stories. A quick final note before we get started. For compelling stories, come here to Empathetic Machines. For medical advice, consult an expert. Consult your doctor. This is not a medical advice show. Today's podcast is about a doctor who's taken on the mission of reinventing wellness. Did you like a good story? You're a student of the diversity of lives we can live in America. This is a great story. It does both of those things. It's about a man who came from a family of automotive innovators to become a healer. It's a story about facing down the AIDS epidemic before our government and our other institutions really knew what to do about it. They were figuring it out. There's something else in this story, too. If you're curious, or your experience, or your intuition tells you there may be more to healing than what you get from your traditional doctor's office sometime, well, the story's for you. Allow me to introduce Dr. Mike Stewart, the chief medical officer of Andourage. I understand you you come from automotive people. Would you mind telling me a bit about that? Yeah, being born and raised outside of Detroit, I think uh, most people actually do. <laughs> yeah, my father and his two brothers, along with my grandfather and another friend of the family many years ago started a company to produce a product for the automotive industry called a clinch nut that would clinch itself to sheet metal parts and uh, the progressive dyes that form those parts. After they wound up starting a company and then producing the product, they began to invest money into research and development, and they came up with a better product that was called a pierce nut. These nuts pierced their own holes and then became an integral part of that sheet metal assembly to dye speeds and dye tolerances, and that technology is used in all production automobiles today. And, you know, having been raised around people who were business people and entrepreneurs, they just weren't really happy unless they were somewhere near the leading edge in their industry. And now kind of looking back on my history, I guess I picked up a lot from my family and my father and my uncles, because in medicine, I'm not really that happy unless I'm near the leading edge as well. And I had that opportunity, of course, with HIV when it came out, and I was involved in that before we had any effective medications out there. And now with uh, cannabis, I feel like it's the same thing again, being on the leading edge, although this one is a little different. So kind of interesting now that when I I never put the two together that that I'm not happy unless I'm on the leading edge. And that's probably because of the environment in which I was raised. Would you mind telling me a bit about 
where your story starts. It is kind of interesting. I started skiing when I was four years old. I had the opportunity to do that. It was a, a really wonderful opportunity. And in actuality, my love for skiing, in a way, is uh, what serendipitously brought me into medicine. I decided after my senior year of college that I was going to take a year off before I started working, partly because I was so busy during my senior year, I didn't get a chance to go skiing once. And so I moved to Colorado and, and did just that. And so I was at the base of Copper Mountain in a very small community with a mostly volunteer fire department working as a waiter and uh, being a small community, got to know the, the people around. And I had been trained as an emergency medical technician while I was in college just because I was interested in the subject and had the training, but really had never applied it before. And that fire department at Copper Mountain at the time uh, was a little shorthanded, and I at least knew how to take a blood pressure, and most of their calls were medical, so they were very excited to recruit me onto the fire department. I, I hate to date myself, but when I started with the fire department, I actually stood on the back tailgate and clipped myself into a belt when we would be deployed out, even on the interstate. That's, yeah, I mean, we had a, they had just gotten rid of an old Cadillac ambulance when I started running with the ambulance service. And being with fire rescue, you never know what you're going to see when you get there. And, you know, 95% of the time, you don't ever have to do your job because people aren't as injured as they think they are. But that 5%, things get to be pretty exciting. I chose to take some advanced life support training and I became an ENT intermediate, just one step below a paramedic. So I was allowed to put a breathing tube down into people, administer IVs, certain medications, defibrillate. And we really were able to move into the into providing advanced life support with the fire department. And I also began working with Summit County Ambulance Service and really, really enjoyed that career. Was there a hospital in the town at the time? No, we had a uh, medical center that was open 24 hours a day. For a while, it was a part of it was a trailer. It was so informal back when I was there that I did begin volunteering at the medical center in Frisco, Colorado. And I would be there with a nurse at night. The medical center would be locked up. And if a patient came in, they would ring a doorbell and the nurse would unlock the medical center all by herself alone, if I wasn't there, and then call a doctor in. And so they actually were very happy to have a volunteer around, you know, who was interested in learning medicine. That medical center was staffed by family practice physicians. And so everything that came through that door, and we were right off of Interstate 70. So we had everything from, you know, high impact trauma from car accidents to you know, teenagers coming off of a church bus with abdominal pain who wound up delivering in the emergency room. So it was a wonderful experience. I look back on it, kind of miss it now where it was that informal. I can't imagine you would have a medical center today where you had one nurse working alone at night who would open the door for anyone who knocked on it. How did you decide and, and recognize it's time It's time for me to be serious and be a healer. How did you know you, you were a, a healer and you were going to do this? You know, I think I, I would describe the healing arts as one that was filled with a lot of resistance on my part. 
I think I was in the fourth grade, possibly fifth grade, when my grandfather had a stroke. And he lived across the state of Michigan from me. And I would go with my mother very frequently to visit him. But it was reported back to me how the medical staff there, the nurses and the doctors, had talked to my mother. And they said, my grandfather not only did so much better when I came to visit him, but his roommate did so much better when I came to visit. Would my mother please bring me when she came to see her father? But I really never thought that that was going to be my path. Remember, I was raised in a family of entrepreneurs and business people. I worked in the the family businesses. I did many different things there. And I really believed back then that I would go into the family business. And in fact, it wasn't a It wasn't received as a joyous occasion when I made the announcement to my family that I had become very interested in medicine and that I had made the decision I wanted to go back and get my pre-medical requirements done. They thought I was a bit crazy. Ultimately, my father, he actually came out to visit me in Colorado. And when he experienced how inspired I was with what I was doing, and I was able to show him around the fire department and ambulance barns and things, he sat down with me and he just said, obviously, you are really taken by this and it is wonderful to see. And I am fully supportive of your decision to go into medicine. And uh, one of my uncles wasn't quite so generous, but my father and I, he really enjoyed it. When, when did you know, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I, I decided to do that, I, I would guess it was 1986, and it was after a conversation I had with my fire chief. I had been working at the fire department. Ultimately, I wound up living at the fire department for a while and just really enjoyed what I was doing, and when I spoke to my fire chief about it, he sat me down and, and took a lot of time with me, and he said, you know, I, there's no question you'll get into the fire academy. And, you know, you'll have a a wonderful career, but I really have to be honest with you. And he told me they wouldn't let me continue doing what I was doing very long. In his words, he said, Mike, they're going to put a white shirt on you with your education and your, you know, intelligence. They're going to make you an officer very quickly. And you're just not going to have this kind of same hands-on experience that you're having. And he then went on and and he said, you're working over at the medical center. You enjoy what you're doing there too. You have the ability to be a doctor. Why don't you consider it? And it was like a light switch had been flipped. And I went, wow, I really could. And, you know, I had been involved in, in, you know, studying medicine or paramedicine anyway. And I, I did very well at it and I had the confidence that I could do it. And It really was that conversation that inspired me to change directions. Well, family practice, again, having my experience into medicine being that the family practitioners did everything, well, why would you want to limit yourself? If you're doing medicine, why do you want to send somebody to somebody else all the time or you know, limit what you're doing. I I really enjoyed that the whole person could be treated. And in retrospect, it it might have been uh, a better fit for me to have gone to osteopathic school in that they really focus more on systems rather than the pieces. But I think back then there was a prestige associated with the MD and I went after that 
but I, I chose family practice because of its focus on the whole rather than on the pieces. Let's talk maybe a bit about how you got started and how you ended up leaning into the HIV epidemic. What were some of your experiences leaving school and then becoming a doctor? I think there's sort of, there's a there's a transition there. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a transition. I chose a residency program in Denver, Colorado that was uh, family practice. When I went there, it was Mercy, Mercy Family Practice Residency. And it was a relatively small hospital in Denver. As far as the residents in Mercy Hospital, they were all family medicine residents from that particular program. So we got to run the hospital. And again, that was a, a wonderful experience because as a family practice training to have people that came into the emergency department and needed to be intubated or needed to have a subclavian line put in or something like that, we didn't call the surgical resident in to do it as the family practice resident. That was our job. And so it was very congruent with my desire to be fully trained as a family physician. I went to go work for a hospital-owned practice that was connected to Porter Hospital in Denver. We were not only connected to the hospital, we were adjacent to an assisted living facility. So the majority of what I did was geriatric medicine. This was at the time when HIV was around. And I'd been aware of HIV being in paramedicine. In fact, when I started in paramedicine, they didn't even have a test for it. Eventually, mm -hmm. they came up with the HDLV3 test. And it was during my, was during my residency when a very, very close friend of mine was not only diagnosed as being HIV positive, he only had a handful of T cells and met the criteria to be diagnosed with AIDS. And there was no medication that was available at that time that was effective. And so I started studying HIV medicine while I was in residency and continued studying it. I wound up having a two-year no-compete clause with the Porter Hospital System. And uh, I wound up calling another doctor that I knew who came from the same residency program that I went to, and he was doing a lot of HIV care. And I called him and I said, Bentley, I wanted to, to get into competition with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the short story is we had lunch the next day and I began uh, working for the office he was working with, which ultimately I was able to acquire and we became the largest family practice providers of HIV care in a five-state region right about the time the protease inhibitors had hit expanded access. How did you become the largest provider? We were not exclusive to HIV, but we for a while were the only medical office in the state of Colorado that was advertising as gay and lesbian friendly. There were two areas that came into HIV care. You had Infectious disease, which was very involved uh, with HIV, at least in the beginning, because these people were showing up with all of these bizarre infections and nobody knew what to do with it. So they went to infectious disease specialists because it was an infectious disease. Now we're talking 30 years ago, and it was not as accepting as it is today. And what many people found was that the infectious disease docs weren't really that excited about having these gay men in their waiting room. And they wound up returning back to their primary care doctors 
and saying, I don't know what else to do. I want you to treat me. And so the primary care docs, the family practice docs, learned about HIV because there was a need for them to do so. People weren't 100% sure how this was transmitted. There were a lot of questions out there, but these HIV docs in infectious disease were amazing. But there is a different school out there. And in the very beginning, it created some interesting times at some of these conferences where we were learning about what was you know, being discovered with HIV medicine. You would have these infectious disease docs that were pretty much suit and tie kind of people. And then you would have these primary care docs, mostly family practice physicians. Many of them were gay and had a large gay and lesbian following, and that's why they had to learn HIV care. And mostly flip-flops and shorts. And uh, it, it, it was amazing how well the two groups mingled together and got along great. How did you recognize you wanted to spend more time in this particular area? I mean, was there something that happened that made you a bit more dedicated to this space? There's one person in particular that really stands out. And this is somebody who has told me that I can talk about him. So I'm not breaking patient-doctor confidentiality. Jonathan walked into my office shortly after I had been working with Bentley Smith and, and really was up to snuff on HIV care. He came in with, with, I think he had already named his T-cells, either that or I had recommended he do so. He had so few. He had less than five T-cells. He wound up in my office because I was following him as his primary care doctor, and I was not his infectious disease doc. He had just started coming into my office. And I was reviewing the care that he was getting for his HIV. And in my opinion, it was inadequate. And I felt really conflicted about being able to tell him that. But the good news is we just hired an MA, a medical assistant from another office that had gone bankrupt. And Jonathan had been a patient at that other office. And the medical assistant knew him pretty well and really liked him. And he liked her. And she overheard me talking about this patient to my colleague. I believe I said something to my partner, you know, if I can't get this guy to let us take care of his HIV, I think he'll be dead soon. And that very afternoon, I walked in to see a patient and it was Jonathan sitting there. And that's when he told me he had a one in five chance of seeing 1999. Mm. And he decided that he would transfer his HIV care over to us. And I'm happy to report that Jonathan is still alive today. At this point, Dr. Stewart made a point to change his tone a bit. He was initially unsure about including this section in our conversation in the podcast, to be honest. Uh, he's humble, but it's not just that. He was quite concerned that the focus be clearly on the patient and on the caring, that we were talking about getting to the bottom of what works. So, so what we're talking about here is care and what can be achieved when the care is more tightly focused on the individual? Well, you know, there's something I don't talk about very often, but to the best of my knowledge, even though many other people were having issues with HIV, I don't ever remember losing a patient. You know, it's, it's really, it's an awkward thing. Is it chance? Is there somebody out there that actually passed away that I didn't know about? I don't know. And it sounds to me like it is hyperbole. Mm -hmm. 
and and you you can understand my reluctance to repeat that and in in fact it took my previous medical partner sitting down with isaac a quick parenthetical here Uh, isaac is the chief executive officer for entourage this is the company for which dr stewart is currently the chief medical officer you can meet isaac in another one of our podcasts he too is a mission driven by the idea of reimagining wellness Isaac and somebody else that was working with us at the time. And when I left to go do something, she is the one that told Isaac that. And I've lost plenty of clients. I was, you know, the medical director for a hospice. (laughs) I'm supposed to lose clients. (laughs) But the number of people I graduated from hospice was incredible. They were people that came on that were supposed to die and they wouldn't die. (laughs) This This is the issue. When people slip through the cracks in our medical system, which is really, really, really common. For example, in hospice, we had this one lady with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Her lungs were very, very diseased. And she would come on our service, and I would make weekly house visits to her, and we would get her medications tuned up so she could breathe better and be in more comfort. And as we would do that, she would improve and she would then fail to meet hospice criteria. She would then have to be discharged from hospice. She would go back to the regular medical system. She would not get appropriate medical care. She would become eligible for hospice again. She would join hospice again. I would start seeing her again. She would improve again. Then she would graduate again. And I think this went on four times with her and I finally quit hospice and she was still alive. Well, you know, this dovetails into so many areas of life where it is consistent. You have to find what works. If we're on the fire department and we arrive on scene of a rollover car accident and there's somebody trapped in the car, we don't look at that and say, oh, you know what? It's too difficult for us to get the person out of the car. That's not an option. Doing whatever it takes is what you are there to do. And in medicine, I think I carry some of that over with me as well. At one level, your life is the the right career. You made the choice. But at another level, you're finding there are things that aren't quite squaring. And so you start you started to figure out what makes work. Maybe okay. Go- Remember, I entered the field of HIV medicine while I was still in residency. So I was a licensed doctor and I was learning about it, but I wasn't a primary provider of HIV medicine. At that time, I don't even know if AZT was approved. A quick note here, some research after we had finished our discussion. AZT was available at that time, but only as a monotherapy. Okay, back to the story. So the medical options were non-existent at that point in time. And when you have a close friend, you do whatever it takes. We eventually, we would try pretty much anything that we evaluated the risk of and decided to give it a try. So there were nutritional things, there were mind-body things, there were some medications that were used off-label, there was a medical trial. At one point in time, now this is after the medications actually had become available and we had a very potent um, combination medication that this person was taking and got the viral load undetectable, but his CD4 count, his T cells would not come up. 
And so we searched for a clinical trial and got him involved in a high-dose interleukin-2 trial. The side effects of that interleukin-2 were so severe and would create these high fevers and these shaking chills that I remember sitting in the hot tub for hours with this guy, you know, with his fever at about 104, 105, and he could not get warm. He was just having shaking chills for hours to the point where Mm -hmm. I thought he was going to be exhausted and have to go into the hospital. But we did whatever it took. And again, I tell you, that person who had less than 20 T cells is alive today. Hmm. And that's what we can do when we do whatever it takes. You have to have patients who want this too. This is not an easy thing. It's not taking a pill and getting better. You, you really have to address the whole patient, the whole client, and and at any rate, I, I pretty much in the beginning of my uh, career with HIV and medicine had a license to do whatever it takes. Nobody came down on me for using drugs off label, for using medications that were on label in a way that was in doses that were not on label. It's one of these very difficult areas because there were plenty of mistakes that were made in HIV medicine when people were doing that. And yet, overall, I think the practitioners probably did a really good job and if anything, erred too much on the side of not venturing into the unknown. But when I was doing HIV care, it was pretty well recognized. We didn't have good treatment And those docs, even the insurance companies in the beginning were afraid. And they would they would let me do whatever it takes. Did things change over time? And and as they changed, how did that change your practice? And did did it oh yes, things did change. And the insurance companies became more and more aggressive. I was sitting in my office one morning and A phone call came through that I answered, and it was uh, from an insurance company, and this nice woman on the phone was talking to me, and and she said, Dr. Stewart, you've been identified as a catastrophic provider. You know, during this whatever period of time, while your colleagues prescribed $38.42 worth of medications, you prescribed $158,000 worth. So we're going to have to send a case manager to your office because it's catastrophic for our insurance company. And I, I told her my policy was she had to feed my staff. And, you know, she explained, well, that wasn't their policy. And I said, well, that's fine, but it is mine. And uh, eventually she did call back and she said, Dr. Stewart, it's been brought to my attention that you're not an ordinary family practice office. And I said, well, that I would agree with that. (laughs) And she says, are you doing HIV care? And I said, yes, we are. She did come out to the office. We, We met and she did feed my staff. But the insurance companies, they keep very tight control on where their money is going. Fortunately, most of the insurance companies recognized, at least back then, I don't know where it is today, but the studies they did back when I was doing HIV care all confirmed that the costs were lower when the insurance companies let the HIV docs do what they were doing. And that's probably changed today. But clearly, the pharmaceutical industry was very interested in what I was doing. 
by the time I sold my office, my pharmaceutical reps let me know that I was prescribing around a million dollars worth of medications a month. And so pharma would let me know, they would track my prescriptions and let me know. They would tell me where I landed in the prescribing piles of, of people. And, uh, you know, to have been the largest family practice prescriber of testosterone in the state of Colorado and not ever once have someone from the DEA question me about that really indicates to me that as an HIV doc, I was given a little more latitude than most docs. Hmm. Now, I don't, I don't know for a fact that I was the largest family practice prescriber of testosterone, but that's what I was told by my rep. When did you start to hear about cannabinoids and how does that enter into your thought processes and your practice? I was first exposed, as most of us were, to the term marijuana. I was raised and taught And even in medical school, taught that you don't want to be smoking marijuana. That stuff is far more dangerous than cigarettes. I was actually taught that in medical school. Of course, it's not true, but it's what I was taught. And that was my my background. However, I was doing HIV care, and HIV and marijuana were going hand in hand for symptomatic treatment, and a lot of my clients were using it. And occasionally someone would ask me for a recommendation or a letter stating that it was advisable for them to use marijuana. Now, at the time, being the only medical office in the state of Colorado that was advertising as being gay and lesbian friendly, this was back in the time of Amendment 2 when it was legally okay to discriminate based on sexual orientation having another red flag for my office being an office that was giving out prescriptions for marijuana was not an area I wanted to go into at all. But I did have another group, an infectious disease group, that were comfortable doing that. So I would refer my clients out to get whatever they needed, but I wouldn't venture down that path on my own. I was too afraid of it. But it didn't stop me from noticing that these clients who were asking me for this were doing really well. And I didn't really put it all together formally until much later. You know, I'd already sold my medical office. I'd moved to California. I had become the medical director and team physician for a hospice out here. And then I had an opportunity to make an investment into a grow facility. And I started to look into it and into the cannabinoids. And that's about six years ago, maybe a little longer ago that I actually started studying it. I started studying the endocannabinoid system and boy, was I amazed. So I went from an area of medicine when I was doing hospice care. It was wonderful. It was rewarding. I truly felt like I made a difference in people's lives, but the medicine was not very inspiring and it was not new medicine by any means. And when I started studying the endocannabinoid system, I got my passion back for medicine. At this point, I asked Dr. Stewart about uh, his reactions to the story of Jim Tacono. Jim Tacono's story is another one of our podcasts in this series about um, mission-driven approaches to reimagining wellness. Uh, Jim Tacono suffered from a debilitating autoimmune disease for 20 years. And his story is one of addressing this. In Dr. Stewart's quick response to Jim's story, we get a good perspective 
on healing. So then when we were on our call uh, last week with Jim, mm-hmm. did you have any particular reactions to what he was saying on his journey and where he was? Well, there, there, there are a lot of reactions that I have to it. Sometimes I do attenuate those a little bit because it's how our system just failed him from the beginning. And it sure, he's the type of person that a family practice doc or a functional medicine doc really could be helpful with. Irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, these other diseases that are really autoimmune diseases. They're where our immune system, for one reason or another, starts to turn on itself and it creates symptoms and disease. His, you know, what's, what's happened, he gets a system that, that's out of balance. And our healthcare system today isn't designed as a healthcare system. The healthcare system that we have in place today is disease management. And when we are involved with an autoimmune disease where the body is somehow attacking another portion of the body, if we don't back up and try to address why that is occurring, we're left simply chasing symptoms. And in my opinion, that's pretty much what Western medicine does when we get into the autoimmune diseases. We just don't have good therapies for those that are safe, cost-effective, and easy to use. What we want to be able to do is to balance the body. And in the case of autoimmune issues, very frequently it's my understanding that the endocannabinoid system is out of balance. And so to go to a doctor who can look at this from a system standpoint is in my opinion, a more effective approach than it is trying to chase symptoms with Western medicine. There are all sorts of tools out there that we have where we can get people to help balance their system in a more natural way. Pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals come into that as well. When we can't do it through that direction, we, we have an amazing system in our bodies that is designed to return to its natural state of being if we eliminate anything that is interfering with that state of being. And in our bodies, that state of being is wellness. And so the next area to really look at is if you are balancing your system with your thought processes and, and, and helping out that direction... What are you taking into the system? What are you giving the system? Are you giving it the essential fatty acids that it needs in a stable form? And by the way, those are not cold water fish oils. Cold water fish oils are toxic. Please don't use them. But there are stable essential fatty acids in omega-3 and omega-6. So we would look and see what kind of nutrients are going into the body And, you know, are there micronutrients in addition that need to be adjusted? If there is a high level of inflammation going on, should we be looking at uh, a ketogenic diet for a little while where we're using food as medicine? Do we need to eliminate toxins from the body? Is that a source of the inflammation going on here as well? So really getting yourself on a detoxification in a good protocol for getting some good nutrients into your body as well 
these are approaches that are really systematic in that they work, but they're not necessarily easy and they're time consuming. The, the addition then of nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, and what I will say is maybe just the, the phytonutrients as well, all of that goes, I, I look at it really as the intake in the body. Some of the pharmaceuticals you may need to use to help with symptoms are going to be toxic to the body. And if that's the case, are we supporting their detoxification at the same time we are using those? If there is a short period of time, for example, somebody needs to go in for a surgery or in the cases of cancer, chemo or radiation, are we preparing that client in advance for the procedure they're going to have done so that they go into it um, with their immune systems charged up and nutritionally fit? These are all things to take into consideration when treating a person. When it comes and gets into the phytocannabinoids, this is where, you know, things really light up for me because we have a plant that is incredibly non-toxic. To date, I'm unaware of any report in a human being who has died of a direct overdose of cannabis. I think they would have to use so much that they would die because they ate too much. But at any rate, we can make people really, really uncomfortable with high doses of THC, but it's incredibly safe to be able to use. It wasn't until recently, you know, the last hundred years, that cannabis has been removed from our day-to-day experiences. We used to come into contact with this plant on a very regular basis. Cannabis, you know, was never taken out of the, the medical toolbox because it was dangerous. It was taken out of the medical toolbox because of politics and economics. It's been used for, you know, thousands of years, and we co-evolved with it for millions of years. Millions of years of coevolution. I think that's a sufficiently large enough idea to end the podcast on. Remember why we started this series of podcasts in the first place. We're exploring why people are inspired to join mission-driven organizations. For Dr. Stewart, his commitment is to the mission of Entourage, the company for which he's the chief medical officer, and that mission is to reimagine wellness. I think to understand why Dr. Stewart is driven to the mission, we just have to listen to something he said during our discussion. He do whatever it takes to provide care, to create wellness. And maybe underneath that, there's a bit of a feeling that what's been sanctioned and agreed to by standard medicine, while fantastic, sometimes may not be enough. We need to look for the next thing. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Isaac Foster and Music for Makers for the theme music. I look forward to your comments, dear listeners. Bye-bye.